Hi, Katie. Hello, Dominic. How are you doing? I am fine, thank you. How are you, Katie Lee? I am also fine. Why are we talking like robots today? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe it's because we're going to talk about something a bit serious. We don't have to be formal just because we're talking about something serious. Uh, Okay, I'll try my best. But anyway, yes, we're doing something a little bit different this week, listeners. We're going to be doing a bit of a, a deep dive on something that we've been thinking about a lot lately. It's not the jolliest thing we've ever talked about, but it is really interesting and important and we can't always talk about jolly things, can we? We can't, sadly. As you are listening to this, tens of thousands of officials and protesters and lobbyists are wrapping up the COP27 climate talks in Egypt. These are the latest in the yearly United Nations climate change conferences where all these people get together to discuss what we can do to save this planet from climate destruction and how we can keep as much of the planet as habitable as possible. And there's one subject that's been creeping up the agenda, and that is climate migration. People having to leave their homes because of the kind of natural disasters that are happening more and more often due to climate change. Pakistan now. The UN Secretary General is calling it a monsoon on steroids. The floods are the worst in the nation's history. More than a thousand people have been killed and millions of people have been displaced. Many families in Central America, it is a choice between migration and starvation. And more and more climate change is to blame. A humanitarian challenge is emerging in Nigeria as the country experiences its worst floods in a decade. So far, more than 600 people have died and at least 1.4 million people have been forced from their submerged homes. You say it's been creeping up the agenda, but there's actually been some criticism that it's not been featured prominently enough at these big climate talks. Yeah, it's true. Although I feel like when people have talked about it, At COP this year, it has made some headlines. For example, Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados, she made headlines when she warned of the possibility of up to a billion climate refugees by the middle of the century, unless governments start to act now. It's a pretty terrifying warning. I don't even know how we would begin to deal with that kind of situation. And that's one of the reasons that we wanted to make this episode, to see how people are thinking about this issue, how people with power are planning for it, if at all. And this being a European podcast, we're especially interested in Europe's role in all this. We live on an industrialized continent that has historically contributed a massive amount to climate change. What are we doing to deal with the fact that this thing that we have helped to cause is contributing to millions of people having to leave their homes. We also wanted to know how the EU as an institution was grappling with this all and whether the idea of being a climate refugee is something that's recognised by the law. So this week, we're going to be a bit more laser-focused than usual on this one topic. In an episode supported by the European Commission, let's find out a bit more about all of this with the help of two experts. Okay, I've launched it. I hope there will not be background noise because my daughter might wake up at every minute now. I am Alexandre Porteret and I work for DG Echo in Brussels. Alexandre works for DG Echo, which is short for the Directorate General for European Civil Protection and Humanitarian Aid Operations. It's quite a mouthful. It is. What are his business cards like? Are they like one meter long? I think this is why they use DG Echo, for brevity's sake. Anyway, it's this bit of the European Commission that manages the EU's humanitarian aid around the world. 
and that includes responding to natural disasters outside the EU. Good morning, everyone. Morning, Francois. Good morning. My name is Francois Germain. I'm a researcher in geopolitics. Am I surrounded by French people this week? That's a very offensive thing to say, Dominic. Alexandre and I are French. Francois is actually Belgian. Oh, sorry, Francois. I shouldn't have assumed, but lots of Francophone people anyway. Representing. And anyway, look, the most well-informed two people on this topic just happen to be Francophone men in Belgium, okay? A little bit specific, but that's what we're doing this week. Uh, Francois is the director of the Hugo Laboratory. It's a research centre in Liège in Belgium that specialises in studying how climate change affects migration. He's also the lead author on the most recent IPCC report. That's those big UN climate reports that basically sum up everything that humans know about climate change. We talked to Francois and Alexandre about how much climate change is influencing migration already, how Europe is responding, and what they think we should be doing. Francois, I was wondering if we could break down the term climate refugee and talk about the refugee part of that first. There's some variation on how the word refugee gets defined, right? How would you define a refugee? Of course, there is a legal definition which is contained in the Geneva Convention from 1951. But I think that it is important when we talk about refugees to go beyond the legal definition and recognize that a refugee is, at least in my opinion, any person who's supposed to flee his or her home. The jury is out so far on whether we should be using the term climate refugee at all. And there's no clear definition of what a climate refugee is anyway. We'll get onto that later. But first of all, Francois and Alexandre talked to us about how climate change is already causing people to move and where in the world this is happening. First, there are, of course, the climate extreme events such as floods, landslides, droughts, or heat waves. And clearly, the region of the world that is most affected by these climate extremes, that is South and Southeast Asia. The second kind of climate impacts that is driving people away from their homes is land degradation and droughts. And the region that is mostly affected by this is Sub-Saharan Africa. But first, the African nation of Somalia has long had a forbidding climate, searing heat and dry desert conditions. Now, relentless droughts have stripped millions of rural herders of their animals and driven humans closer to the scarce water supplies. It's a living example of the effects of climate change. We reckon that about half of the population depends directly on subsistence agriculture uh, for its primary livelihood. So as of now, we already observe massive migration flows from rural regions to cities because people have lost their livelihood as a result of climate variations. And then finally, there is, of course, sea level rise, a creeping impact of climate change. It is clearly more slow and sad, but we really underestimate the massive impact that sea level rise will have on the coast Earlier this year, in February 2021, the Indonesian parliament has approved the government plan to relocate the capital of the country, Jakarta, from the island of Java to the island of Borneo because they know that in a few decades, Jakarta will be completely and permanently flooded. So I think we need to realize that sea level rise will literally redraw the maps of the world and that, of course, coast and deltas are typically 
the areas where most people live. It is really shocking to hear about how there are areas of the world with a lot of people living in them that are being wiped out due to sea level rise already and many others that are going to be wiped out in the not too distant future. Yeah, we actually made a special episode about your city, Amsterdam, and that there might come a day not that long in the future where it just isn't there anymore. Yeah, it's true. I live two meters below sea level. So yeah, it's another vulnerable part of the world. And at some point, the dikes and the dams won't be able to hold the water back. And the people of Amsterdam will also be climate refugees. But in many parts of the world, this crisis is happening now. It's not some scary idea for the medium future. So I asked Alexandre, how many people in the world are already having to migrate for reasons linked to climate change? So last year, there were almost 25 million people who were displaced internally by disasters. And if you look, well, over the past 10 years, for instance, the number of people displaced each year due to disasters has increased by approximately 40%, which is huge. But as Francois points out, it's really hard to know how many people around the world can count climate change as a reason for leaving home. So there are not people whom you can identify and say, those are climate refugees. Let me, for example, take the case of some people arriving in Europe and coming from West Africa, from, let's say, Guinea or Côte d'Ivoire. Many of these young men used to live in rural areas and were sent to the city by their families because these families could no longer make a livelihood out of agriculture. And some of these young men are traveling throughout Africa, through Niger or Mali, and some of them end up in Libya. And many of them try their luck and try to escape through the Mediterranean to Europe rather than risking their lives in Libya. And when they arrive on the European shores, we consider that these people are economic migrants because they come from countries like Cote d'Ivoire or Guinea, countries which are not at war currently. But if we wanted to look and to take a deeper look at the key reasons why they've migrated, then I think we would realize that they've also migrated as a result of climatic conditions. And therefore, I don't think we can set apart a category of climate migration that would be independent from the other drivers of migration. Of course, that makes it extremely difficult to count the people. The, the only case when you can really count the people displaced is when people are displaced by a disaster, because in that case, the cause of displacement is extremely clear. It's clearly a hugely complicated thing to try and get your head around. So we asked Alexandre what the EU is doing to try and better understand what's going on. We believe that research, data collection, data analysis, these are key to really understanding the dynamics of this phenomenon, which is in the end still a new field of work for us. And so we are funding several research projects which address this issue. And the findings show that at least when you look at internal displacement, well, most internal displacement is linked to climate factors, to disasters or to the effects of climate change. And we also want to work on the link between research on the one side and policy making on the other to make sure that our humanitarian action in this field is informed. Okay, so the EU is already doing a lot of research in this area. You work, Alexandre, for the European Commission's humanitarian wing, otherwise known as GG ECHO. 
Is your team also offering more direct help to the victims of climate change? Climate change and also environmental degradation are already worsening some of the current humanitarian crises across the world. And in addition, they are also creating new humanitarian crises. So obviously, this has a huge impact on our work as DG ECHO's mandate is to provide humanitarian emergency response. Each year, most of our humanitarian budget is allocated to projects that address the needs of forcibly displaced persons, so including refugees and including internally displaced persons in various situations of displacement around the world where we try to address the most pressing needs of the displaced with food, shelter, water, protection, and so on. So, so far, the countries bearing the lion's share of climate change are really outside the EU's borders. But also within the EU, we have seen several summers of these huge fires, floods, droughts, and so on. 120 people have died and hundreds more are still missing after the worst flooding in parts of Western Europe for several decades. Our temperatures will peak in France and Spain on Thursday. It means more wildfires across the continent. Back in Central Europe, firefighters have declared the highest level of alert after a fire burst out of control at the popular Bohemian Switzerland National Park in Czech Republic. Nearly two-thirds of the EU is in drought warning conditions or in a state of drought alert. The River Rhine has dropped so low that houseboats have become stranded and commercial ships can't carry full loads anymore. And for those creatures who live in Europe's waterways, it's a question of life and death. I vigili del fuoco continuano a lottare contro le fiamme nel dipartimento sud-occidentale francese della Gironda, mentre oltre 10.000 studenti sono stati costretti ad evacuare. Is there any evidence that we are already witnessing climate displacement within the EU? We are talking about a phenomenon that is truly global here, and I cannot think really of any country which is not impacted by this one way or another. So yes, this includes, of course, Europe. Last year, if you look at Europe, and I mean continental Europe, not only the EU, well, weathering streams caused more than 250,000 displacements. We had wildfires in the Mediterranean during the summer, including in southern France, in Greece, in Italy and Spain, uh, which have displaced, I think, more than 150,000 persons, which is a huge increase as this figure is almost seven times the figure for 2020, just two years ago. And I am sure you remember the floods in Germany. Well, these have triggered the highest displacement seen in years, over 16,000 persons in just two days. So indeed, the European Union and EU member states are also very much impacted by this phenomenon. I think a lot of us here in Europe don't think about this phenomenon as something that happens here, but it does. I guess people perhaps don't think about this in relation to Europe because of the fact that a lot of the people who are forced out of their homes move within their countries. And maybe we have a tendency to downplay it if people have to move homes but are able to stay in the same country. Most people displaced by climate change are internally displaced. So within the borders of their country, which adds a layer of complexity as the plight of internally displaced persons everywhere in the world is often much less visible than that of refugees, for instance, although they face the very same challenges in terms of access to shelter, 
food, basic services, and also like refugees, they are extremely vulnerable and they face increased risks during displacement. Another issue is the issue of climate hotspots. People displaced by conflict or by violence often reside in countries that are also very vulnerable to climate shocks, very exposed. If you imagine a situation where there is already conflict or a large refugee community, and then on top of that, people have to deal with water and food shortages, it puts quite some extra strain on everyone involved. Alexandre also pointed out that sometimes people who have already had to flee their homes because of food and water shortages then wind up having to move again for the same reason. Another challenge is the fact that no legal protection framework really specifically addresses this phenomenon at a global level. So people who are forced to cross a border in the context of a disaster or because of the effects of climate change have in reality very limited protection when they arrive in another country. And for instance, the UN Refugee Convention of 1951 does not recognize disasters as a ground for refugee status. So let's talk about international law for a second. Currently, there's no real legal recognition for people who've been forced to migrate as a result of climate change. But there's increasing conversations about whether that should change. And in one major turning point, two years ago, the UN Human Rights Committee ruled for the first time in the case of someone that we might call a climate refugee. It was a guy called Ioane Tesiota. He and his wife and kids had applied for asylum in New Zealand, but New Zealand deported them back to their home country of Kiribati. It's an island in the Pacific. And this UN committee ruled that by deporting him, New Zealand had actually broken Tesiota's human rights by sending him back to an island where rising sea levels have made it increasingly impossible to live. So is the UN saying governments should recognise the term climate refugee? Uh, not quite. But it did feel like a first step in recognising that you shouldn't be able to deport people to countries where climate change is making life impossible. We asked François if he thought that someone fleeing climate change should fit under the definition of a refugee. In my opinion, yes, because we need to consider that first, the different drivers of displacement interact with each other. And I think that it is really important to recognize as well that climate change is a form of persecution that we inflict upon the most vulnerable people on Earth. Of course, that doesn't mean that they should be entitled to the same protection regime as those fleeing war or violence. And clearly the needs are not the same these people usually do not flee their country. They just want to put themselves out of harm, but they will not necessarily cross a border. And I think this is an important distinction, which means that even though I'm in favor of considering that people fleeing climate change are some kinds of refugees, I do not advocate for the creation of a status of climate refugee in international law because I think that the needs and the situations are fundamentally different. But if we don't use a legal phrase of climate refugees and don't use that as a reason for why people, why national bodies allow people to move into their country, isn't that going to create problems for some of these people who are having to move because of climate change? Sure, but what would it change if those people were legally recognized? I mean, when we look at the Geneva Convention, this convention is violated pretty much every day 
by pretty much every country on earth. I'm not sure that this would change the situation. There is a kind of illusion, I think, in Europe, which is to say that if there was a piece of international law, then everything would be fine. That's not the case. We have a piece of international law for people displaced by war and violence. And look at what happens and look at the number of people who have died in the Mediterranean and look at the borders closing everywhere in Europe. Uh, I think we need to break away from this idea that we can resolve everything through international law. So do you not think it would be helpful then for the EU or even some sort of global body like the UN to formally recognize the term climate refugee? Well, I wouldn't be against it, but I don't think that it would provide a solution to the problem. One reason is that most of the people are internally displaced, which means that any status in international law would not apply to most of the people displaced as a result of climate change. And we should not forget that many developing countries see the attempt of providing a legal status to climate refugees as some kind of obligation that the North would impose upon them. Francois is talking about the fact that 85% of the world's refugees are hosted in developing countries. People fleeing conflict usually just cross to a neighbouring country. They rarely get as far as Europe. And Francois points out that that is unlikely to change. For many industrialised countries, the idea of creating a legal status for climate refugees would also be a way to wash their hands away from the problem and to consider that it is now up to the countries of the global south to provide this protection. So there are many things that can be done through domestic and international law. I just think that we should not consider that a status in international law would be a silver bullet. But you are someone who has kind of changed their mind on this term, climate refugee, right? Like you, you previously didn't like the term climate refugee very much. And then you later decided that uh, maybe you'd been wrong about that and that we should use the term in some contexts. What changed your thinking on that? Well, there has been a really strong push from many legal scholars and international organizations alike not to use the term climate refugee. But I think that if we do not use the word, in many situations, we refuse to face the fact that such displacements are also a form of political persecution. And to me, that is one good reason to speak of climate refugees. So that's what Francois thinks as someone coming from the research side of things. But we also wanted to know what words the EU is using to talk about all this. Well, at DG Echo, we use a rather general term to describe this phenomenon. We talk about uh, disaster and, and climate-related displacement, where persons and sometimes entire communities are forced to leave their homes because of a disaster or because of the impacts of climate change. Both Alexandre and Francois told us that the main thing the EU has done to support people who've been forced to flee climate change is funding humanitarian aid for acute disaster relief. So that's food and water and such. Funding is good, but I don't know, I find myself struggling morally with the fact that historically the EU has been this huge driver of climate change, right, through industrialization. 
And yet a lot of the climate migration that we're talking about is happening outside Europe. What are we supposed to do morally with that fact? Should the EU be doing much more than it currently is? Clearly, I think that it is important, of course, that not only the EU, but industrialized countries in general recognize their immense responsibility in the phenomenon, provide the appropriate funding, but also work with the countries that are affected by these impacts to basically see how they can manage together such migration flows. I mean, the EU cannot just close its doors, close its borders and say, well, you know, that's not my business, deal with it. And clearly recognizing this responsibility would imply to consider African countries and Asian countries as real partners in migration and asylum policies rather than just subcontractors as they are treated at the moment. So, going back to Alexandre, I was interested to know if there is any conversation going on between the humanitarian wing of the European Commission where he works, DG Echo, and, for example, the team that's overseeing the European Green Deal. I asked him if there are other parts of the EU that are also looking into migration driven by climate change, and are they talking about it together? Well, yes, for me, one of the key aspects behind this issue is that it is really cross-cutting. And this means that we cannot really address this phenomenon only with humanitarian action. We must work with other departments of the EU, including those in charge, for instance, of development cooperation, of climate, of environmental action, and so on. For instance, we have published in July a commission staff working document, which is a policy document on displacement and migration related to disasters and climates. And one of our objectives was really to collect in a single place information on the efforts that are deployed by different EU services. This document now provides an overview of our policies in this area, the instruments that we use, for instance, the Green Deal, and of our practices and our projects, which is really comprehensive. We also asked Francois what he thought of how different bits of the EU are working together on this. Clearly, there are some conversations, but the problem is that the key priorities are not aligned with each other. If you look at climate policy, for example, there has been some acknowledgement for at least a dozen years that migration was not necessarily the signal that people had failed to adapt, but could also be a powerful strategy for people to adapt to a changing environment. And for that reason, the negotiations on climate change recognize migration as a strategy that can be and should be encouraged, facilitated, and even funded. This is a pretty mind-blowing idea. This idea that maybe we should be actively funding migration, that migration before a disaster could be an essential part of climate policy. That's the kind of thinking that's behind the plan to move Indonesia's capital city from one place to another. The priority of most industrialized countries right now is to prevent any migration related to climate change at all costs. And yet, the constraints to migration, the driving forces of migration, are more powerful every year. And clearly, inequalities continue to deepen 
with the economic inequalities, but also environmental inequalities, freedom or public liberties. That cannot work in the long run. I mean, if you have driving forces leading more people to migrate and people closing their borders continuously, that will clash. For François, at least, given that less and less of this planet is going to be habitable in the years to come, rich countries are going to need to radically rethink their migration policies. We can find migration agreements on the binational level or on the regional level that could actually work in the interests of the country of origin, of the country of destination, and of the migrants themselves. But for this, we need to recognize the countries of origin as partners in migration policy. And we need to allow people to go freely between countries. I consider that it is a fundamental injustice today that the fate of so many people on the planet is determined by the place where they were born. And we need to consider that the key challenge of climate change really is the challenge of inhabitability. And I mean by that, the question that is asked to us is where it will be possible to live on Earth. And right now, the vast majority of the population cannot choose where they live and are constrained by the place where they were born. And I think this is a fundamental injustice that climate change requires us to address. And that is a part also of climate justice. Regardless of what's happening on the EU level, asylum cases here in Europe are processed at a national level. Are there any national systems that are recording or researching climate in relation to migration and and the refugees arriving? Absolutely. I mean, in the global south, there are many. Three years ago, the countries of East Africa have adopted a protocol for free movement. There are many countries in the world recognizing this already, and some of them are already going one step further and are relocating their population in anticipation of the impacts of climate change. And we see this all over the world, in Vietnam, in Indonesia, in China, but also in Africa, in countries like Mozambique, for example. And most governments in industrialized countries and in Europe continue to see this as a future risk, as something that we could avoid if we are to reduce significantly our greenhouse gas emissions. I think it is important to stop speaking of this in the future tense, but to realize that this is already a reality that needs to be addressed through policy responses. That makes me wonder whether actually formally recognizing climate refugees would have an impact on speeding up emissions reductions in places like the EU, because they would then maybe realize that they have to do something now. Yep, absolutely. And I'm concerned that most of the public and policy debates continue to remain focused on these projections of zillions of people displaced by the middle of the century or by the end of the century. And this is always one of the first questions that is asked to me by journalists is, How many people can we expect in the future? And I'm like, the question is not how many people we can expect in the future, but how many people are just in need of policy response and attention today. And I know that this narrative of a looming migration crisis is often used by climate activists with the hope that governments will take climate change more seriously and will start more significant reduction of the greenhouse gas emissions. But we need to realize that If we float 
the prospect of a looming migration crisis related to climate change, the reaction of states will be to close their borders rather than reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. And therefore, we need to be extremely cautious with such rhetoric because the road to hell is paved with good intentions. This episode was hosted by me, Dominic Kramer. And me, Katie Lee. It was supported by the European Commission, as well as our lovely Patreon supporters, with coordination from our friends at Are We Europe. Production came from Katz Laszlo, and mastering and scoring from Wojciech Oleksiak. Music came from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sounds. We will be back next week with our fifth anniversary show, if you can believe it, Dominic. Happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to us. Uh, why not wish us an early happy birthday on Twitter at Europeans Pod or Instagram at Europeans Podcast. See you all next week. Bye.